Remain standing for the reading of the scripture this morning. We will be reading from chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews. Most of you will be familiar with Hebrews 11. It is very often referred to as the hall of faith in the scripture. It gives us a Holy Spirit codified definition of faith and then examples of said faith and tells us why faith is so important. We'll notice that in verse 6 as we read. We will read through verse 16. Verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith... We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there were born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city. For them. 
Father, I thank you for allowing us to gather with your people again this day. Lord, how we need the camaraderie of the Spirit. How we need this mingling together of the people of God that we might be refreshed from the battle of sin with the world, the flesh, and the devil that awaits us outside of this place. That causes us to long for the crisp, sinless breezes of heaven. Lord, while we are here, we pray that you will make us sufficient servants of Christ and that you will take our time this day that you have designed for the strengthening of your people and the building up of your people for the work of the ministry. Take our time here this day and invigorate us once again, Lord. Fill us with the joy of your salvation. Fill us with the peace that transcends understanding. Make yourself better known to us as believers and make yourself known for the first time in the minds and hearts of unbelievers in this room. That you might be honored and glorified to the utmost by our time here this day. As we lift our voice to you in song, Lord, accept it as a pleasing aroma, as a sacrifice of praise to you, to whom belong all praise and honor and glory. We are not here by man's design. We are here for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name and his name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen. I told my children on the way here that I'm going to take a little bit of a break, a little hiatus from uh, John chapter 4 today. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Very, very brief hiatus, possibly this week and next. Definitely this week and next. I was going to just do it next week, but I want to, I want to take this weekend next. And it, it's something I've been planning to do for a while. We are in the month of October, and uh, in many circles anymore in, in, the, uh, in the Protestant church, it is, it is known as Reformation Month. Some of you will know maybe why that is, but we're going to... We're going to revisit that idea today and next week, depending on how far I get this week. I really was planning on just cutting it off like link sausage when I got to the end of the time today and pick it up tonight and finish tonight, but we're not going to be able to do that. So I'll either finish this next week or I'll preach my previously prepared uh, message for next week. But either way, we're going to answer some questions here and, and get some things clear in our minds as to why we are here if, if someone were to come to you and ask the question, what is the church? What, what is the church? How would you answer that? It would probably be some varying versions of exactly how we would define the church. Is the church just a, a building where people meet? You give people directions to your house. Go down, turn the third driveway past the church. On Thursday afternoon, is that technically the church? Yeah, by strict definition in today's vernacular, yeah, this, that, would be, that would be the church. But what is the church? Is it just a, a room full of people that gather to give 
some money and laugh at a guy talking and, and sing 42 praise and worship songs and then go home feeling better about themselves than when they arrived? Is that the church? Not exactly. You may leave here feeling better than you did when you got here because you understand that the grace of God covers all and you are now in the kingdom and that is reason to leave here feeling better than when you got here. Maybe a little more pointed question would be this. How did the church get here? How, how did we get to church? How do we have this to come to? How do we have this collection of people that arrives on Sunday of all days? There's a sign out in front of the building that calls it the church, and it's a Bible church. How did it get here? Maybe we would ask the question, well, if the church has been around for 2,000 years, give or take a decade or so, was it always like this? Did, did it always go this way? Is this how the church always conducted itself? Did it always look like this? No, probably not. Sometimes it was more grandiose. Sometimes it was far far smaller and, and, and more scattered, scarcely populated? Or this, is this what church should be? Now, you get varying answers to those questions as well. Well, if all of those questions are just keep coming, how important can church really be anyway? I mean, just how important is it? Your family ever ask you that when you have to say, no, I can't go and do that because we have church? Wow. What's church anyway? That's a pretty good question. Well, if the church is important and we want to know what it is like and why it is here and what it is, we need to have a source to go to to find out what that answer is. Where do I go for the right answers? Where do I go for the right answers for how did the church get here? What, what is the church? Why is it like it is? How important is it? We're going we're gonna to look at one of the two greatest epochs in church history. An epoch of time, a block of time. There were two great epochs in church history. The first was the apostolic era and the birth of the church and the codifying of the New Testament. And the word of God delivered to the church, delivered to the saints once and for all. That we might have the word of the living God. Fifteen centuries later. The second greatest epoch. Of church history. Transpired. It is known to us as the Reformation. So you have the apostolic era and the birth of the church followed 1,500 years of tumultuous history later, comes the Reformation era. You say, well, what was the Reformation era? Well, if the apostolic era was the time that the apostles lived from 33 A.D. to about 95 A.D. when the apostle John finally went on to his reward, you had about 60 years of, of the apostolic era 
And then the early church fathers following on the heels of them, many of, of the early church fathers had studied and, and learned from and been discipled by the apostles. Can you imagine being discipled by the apostle John or Peter or Matthew? These men would have formed the, the early era of the church, but it's the apostolic era that was the greatest epoch in church history. It was the birth of the church. The Reformation era, if you need a, a rough... This is a very rough estimate from 1517 to 1685. It, that's, that's when it was the, the Reformation was occurring in earnest. It, it technically was starting to, to spark and, and flame about a, a century prior to that. And it, I guess if you want to be real nitpicky, it's still going on today. But from 1517 to 1685 in the Reformation era was not the birth of the church. That was the rescue of the church. And the church had to be rescued from the clutches of man-made religion, which, it must, which must happen all of the time. That is a constant battle in the church. One of the mantras that came out of the, the Reformation was, was the Latin expression, semper reformanda, which means the church is always reforming because the church is constantly having to battle the mind of man and the feelings of man and the ways of man. told you that October is referred to in, in many circles as Reformation Month. told you that the, the year of 1517 is what is typically viewed as the beginning of the Reformation era, and it was October the 31st of 1517 when that took place. It was on that day that an Augustinian monk, a, a man as devout as a human can be, a man who was not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A man by the name of Martin Luther, a German Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, went to the public billboard, which was the door to the castle, and nailed a paper on which he had written 95 topics of discussion that we refer to now as his 95 theses. 95 thesis statements that he had put out for public debate that they might take all of the professors in the university, all of the theological minds there and get together and, and discuss and debate these 95 concerns that he had about what was in his day the extant church, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church that, that at least on the outside, it was the only church that could legally be conducted. And this man, Martin Luther, was going to be a man put in a place at a certain time, just like Esther was put in Ahasuerus' house for such a time as that. Martin Luther was in Wittenberg, Germany for such a time as this. And two years later, he will stand before Johann Eck in the city of Worms, or Worms, if you like to sound, I like to say Worms, it sounds better. It's easier to remember. At the Diet of Worms. That sounds like a great diet. That could put keto out of business. You lose some weight on the Diet of Worms. Don't even matter what kind. Just pick some worms. That's your diet. You're good. He goes to this, this church council in the city of, of Worms, Germany. And it is there that he makes his grand statement. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. A two-year trek that led this man from these 95 concerns that he had about the abuses of man-made religion. Two years later, he must stand before the most powerful religious, economic, and military 
political power on the planet and say, I hold that the Bible says this even in opposition to what religion says. Luther didn't ask for that, but he found himself in that position. And the day that, that October 31st, that day before that All Saints Eve, he nailed that paper to that door, and it is though a, fi- a shot was fired across Europe, theologically. MacArthur says this about Martin Luther. We're not going to talk as much about Martin Luther as it may sound at the moment, but I need to get a little bit of a precursor in here so that you know where and how and why the Reformation began, and then we're going to look at what came out of that Reformation that we still hold today in some very specific terms. MacArthur says, let's begin, let, let's begin kind of where we are with Martin Luther. Before Luther was a clear-headed theologian, he was a confused monk. Before he was a powerful force, he was a tormented failure. And before he had any spiritual peace, he was loaded with spiritual pain. And the source of Luther's angst and the cause of his affliction was the issue that eludes all false religionists. And it is this. How can one be right with God? That is the question that has given birth to every religion in the world. That is what religion purports to answer. How can one be right with God? For Luther, it was how could he be right with God so as to be forgiven, to be accepted, and to escape hell and gain heaven? His journey to find the way to forgiveness, to find the way to the kingdom of God, to find the way to heaven, began as a Roman Catholic monk, as we all know, believing that his salvation demanded something of himself, that there was the necessity for him to contribute to his relationship to God to make it right. He inflicted extreme torment on his soul and body. Luther quoted, I tormented and tortured myself with praying. That's a strange thing to say. I want to read that again. I tormented and tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold was enough to kill me. I inflicted such pain as I would never inflict again, trying to find some way to atone for his own sin. It's amazing to me that prayer turns into a torturous thing. Hey, that's religion. Luther's self-imposed torture, along with his academic pursuits, along with his sacraments, along with his pilgrimages, and the other deprivations that he gave himself to brought him absolutely no rest and no peace. All they ever did was escalate the torment. The reality was very clear to Luther, MacArthur says. He was by nature, he was by nature and behavior a sinner. And God was by nature and behavior holy, and the gulf was infinite. Luther was convinced that that gulf was so vast that no sinner could please God. He began to feel that God was cruel, and he came to hate God. His own words, Luther said, I did not love Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, 
if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. That man, that struggling religionist, who was as committed a man as he could be to what he was taught and what he believed to be true, coming from the sources of other men, had to have something come from outside to inform him of what was true. And in the providence of God, that came at the hand of a man no less than Deridius Erasmus. Erasmus lived from 1466 to 1536. And 20 years prior to his death in 1516, one year before this October 31st, 1517, one year prior, Erasmus completed and published the first Greek New Testament. Now that is important. Because up until this time, in the Roman Catholic system, all that existed was the Scripture in Latin. little history lesson. Was the Scripture originally written in Latin? Yes or no? It was not originally written in Latin. The Hebrews never spoke Latin. So the Old Testament is all Hebrew, except some in Daniel's and Aramaic for one reason or another. So you had Hebrew, a little smidgen of Aramaic. Do you know what Jesus spoke? What language Jesus spoke during his ministry here on the earth? He spoke Aramaic. The New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, penned by the holy men of God as they were carried by that spirit, that was penned in Koine Greek. Not modern Greek, Koine Greek. Koine Greek is the most accurate nitpicky language that has ever been spoken and codified. That is what God chose to have his word written in the most specific, particular language. As the church moved from Palestine after, after the, the dispersion of the Jews in, in A.D. 70 and really between 33 and 70, there was a lot of that dispersion. They, they drove the believers out of Jerusalem and they took the, the, the scripture, the, 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 the gospel, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem until they were driven out. And the demographics of the church began to change. It began as a almost exclusively Jewish population in the church. Virtually exclusively Israeli. Until God sent Philip to Samaria, and then he sent Peter to Joppa to a Gentile's house. Not just any Gentile, he was a Roman centurion. He was a Roman who, were, who was hated. He was a centurion who was the, the right arm of the Roman government who was even more hated. And he sends Peter there after his sheet vision. And I'll remind you, Peter's sheet vision was not the first time that Peter had been told that he could eat everything. He had already been told that by the Lord years before this. He goes to Cornelius' house. After this vision, preaches the gospel the, the this handful of Gentiles are saved. He goes back to Jerusalem and said, all I can tell you is what happened. I told them what I told you. The Holy Spirit did the same thing to them that he did to you. And all that the Jewish people, believers could say was, well, I guess it's true that God is going to those Gentile dogs as well. And that's where you and I come in. We're the Gentile dogs. And it's good to be one, ain't it? 
It's good to be in the kingdom. Even if I got to eat the scraps, it's all right. It's all right. As the church began to move across Europe and, and into North Africa, it became more and more Gentile. Now, some today would look at that and say, well, God turned his back on the Israelis. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. It was never intended to be strictly the Jews. It was always intended that the Jews would be the light of the world. That is what God has told them they will be. Problem is, you and I are not Jews. So there's either some unfinished business or God just kind of wrote a check he couldn't cash. You decide what you think it is. We'll deal with that later. Maybe we'll deal with that next Sunday night, Q&A. As it moves across Europe, they're moving in, into, and as the, the, the Roman Empire began to, to overtake the, the Greek Empire, Latin became the, the universal language. Rome controlled all of the known world at that time, so you wanted to learn how to do things the way the Romans did so you could be in well with the Romans. So in about middle of the 4th century, in the 320s, a guy that worked for Constantine decided to give a gift to Constantine. He took upon himself to translate the Old Testament and the New Testament into Latin. And he, he did the best that he could. He wasn't necessarily a trained linguist, but he wanted to do that. He understood the need for people to have the Scripture in a, in a common language that they can understand. So he translated it into Latin. We know that of that today as Jerome's Vulgate. It was the vulgar language, not like we use vulgar today. It was the common language. Latin had, become, had overtaken Koine Greek. It was the language of the land. It was the common language. It was translated into Latin. He gives this Latin book to the Roman king, the, the Roman emperor, I keep saying king, he was an emperor, he was more than a king. He decides to make Christianity the universal religion of the Roman Empire. So now we have a universal or Catholic church in all of Rome, and it centers in Rome. So we have a Roman Catholic or a Roman universal church led by a man who has a little more power than any man should be able to have. And he's tr maybe he is well-intended and he is trying to do things that are going to honor God in some way, in his own way. And he m mandates that this book, this Latin translation is the official Bible. 1,200 years later, in comes Erasmus. All that anyone had was a, a, a Latin copy of the scripture. All of, the, the, all of the, the mass that was held in church, everything was done in Latin. All of the, the uh, they don't call them sermons, what do they call them? A homily, that's the word I'm looking for. All of y'all are right, homily is the word I was looking for. The homilies were in Latin. So you go to church, you have no idea what's being said. But you know that whatever this guy says at the, at the end, he's telling you whether you get to go to heaven or not. And he holds the key to the kingdom in a different language. It was in Latin. And they decided, well, ours is, the, ours is the official one. It's the one in this language. Well, nobody understands Latin. So Erasmus, who was also a Catholic priest, he was the leading humanist of his day. He was trying to find the most humanistic, humanly driven way to approach the Scripture to make the Bible fit what he already thought. Does that sound familiar? That has not gone away. That is the majority of the, 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 in the majority of places that call themselves churches in this country today, that is how they approach it from the human perspective first. Erasmus, trying to get in and go with the Pope, decided to, he got some special letters from 
from the Catholic Church to let him out of, I think he had a vow of poverty. They let him out of that, and he began to travel Europe, and he went to all of the libraries, the leading libraries in Europe. He went to, I think he went to Alexandria in Egypt, and he put together the best, most accurate, the oldest uh, transcripts and manuscripts that he could find, and he printed a Greek New Testament for the very first time. And he gives it to the Pope in 1516. And the Pope says, this will be given to all of the schools. One arrives in Wittenberg, Germany, where none other than Martin Luther is trying to find a way to please God that he hated for being righteous, and even though he was not. Martin Luther began to read this New Testament. And he's reading things in this Greek New Testament that are in abject contradiction to what is going on in the church. He makes a pilgrimage to Rome on sabbatical. It was known of Luther to take three hours in confession every day. I don't know how many of you have ever been to confession. None of you stayed three hours. Some of you didn't stay three minutes. I wouldn't last 30 seconds telling you what's going on in here. That's none of your beeswax, buddy. I'm embarrassed that the Lord knows, but I ain't telling you. But for three hours, you're talking about a man of, of, of just a rare conviction. And he's coming across for the first time the word of God in the original language. And he realizes, he comes to a text in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What was Martin Luther looking for? Looking for salvation. He was looking to be declared just, to be declared righteous, to be declared sufficient for God, and to be sufficient for his standard to be in heaven. And he reads here that in the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Friends, what does, the, what does religion tell you? The power for salvation is where? In you. It's up to you. you, you boy, you better not mess up. You better be like me. Just don't look too hard. Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not to everyone who works hard. Not to everyone who tries to freeze themselves to death. Not to everyone who, who treats every religious activity as a tormented and torturous act. I'm going to do it until I, till I hate doing it. How twisted is that? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17. This is, this is the verse that caught Martin Luther. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God. You need to understand the importance of that statement. Because God will not let you into his heaven unless you have a righteousness like his own. The righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of your mama, not the righteousness of the best person that ever lived, not the righteousness of someone who suffered in this earth uh, and, and in their suffering they had enough, enough righteous merit of their own that the excess went into this coffer somewhere that you can give, get some for you. It doesn't say that. It says the righteousness of God. Friends, that's the one thing you can never come up with on your own. If you lived a thousand lifetimes, you couldn't come up with enough righteousness of God in your life to count for you for a millisecond. 
You're born dead in transgression and sin. How do I get to this righteousness of God? This is what caught Luther's eye. Why did it catch his eye? Because the hound of heaven was after this man. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 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 Pistuo. Belief. To believe. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, for, from faith, for faith. From one faithful person to another one to, to bring faith in that person. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by believing. Luther's reading this in this unadulterated Greek for the first time. The righteous will live by faith? No. No. The righteous have to live by every breath that they breathe and everything that they do. No, it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says every breath you breathe and everything you've ever done is no better than filthy rag. The righteous will live by faith. And the God of heaven turned on the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in a blazing sun in the mind and the heart of Martin Luther. And he was saved. He saw that the righteousness of God could belong to a sinner by faith. This Greek New Testament, published by Erasmus as an act of seeming obeisance, but it was an act of currying favor with the Pope, led Luther in particular, to search for the answers that he needed and realize that the Bible and religion are not equal, nor are they the same. And from this, the Reformation exploded onto the continent of Europe. And very shortly, it will cross the English Channel. And relatively shortly after that, it will come across the Atlantic Ocean with a group of Puritans who were seeking a place that they could worship the God of heaven the way that he asked for without the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church or the English Catholic Church known as the Anglican Church. They were running from the likes of King James and King Henry, these Anglican kings that wanted control. We don't want the Roman Church to have control. We want to have control in, Europe, in, in England. Told you things were done in Latin. They outlawed the English translation of the scripture by everyone from Wycliffe to Tyndale to the Geneva Bible that John Knox worked on in, in, in Geneva when he was there studying with, with Calvin. It is the Geneva Bible that came here with the Puritans. Tyndale's translation, they, they, they burned him at the stake after they strangled him and they blew his body to smithereens. That may be where that word came from. They loaded him with gunpowder, strangled him to death, and then lit his body on fire and the gunpowder blew him to bits. That's how much they hated William Tyndale for giving the scripture in English to a people that could read the scripture for themselves for the first time that they may come to the point that Martin Luther came to in understanding the gospel.
The Reformation exploded in Europe. It technically was not until the 19th and 20th century that there were some codifications of what these reformers believed. What Luther would have believed without question. Calvin without question. Zwingli. Melanchthon. Beza. Knox. Owen. They believed without question, completely and absolutely, in five things that have been codified, five Latin statements that you know of as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is the Latin word for alone or only. The five solas of the Reformation tell us what the Reformation is about. And the five solas tell us what is to, to be the chief mandate of the church. How we are to view church. There are going to be some variations in it, and that's okay because we're a variety of people. I've been to church services in Spanish-speaking only church services, and I'm telling you, those people are not still when they sing. And I just stand still because I'm going to mess up everybody's rhythm if I start moving with them. And it's okay. Preacher gets up, preaches the gospel. It's wonderful. But there are these five Latin expressions that codify for us what, is, what it is that sets the church of Jesus Christ apart from every other religion. What sets the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ apart. If anyone ever asks you, what was the Reformation? Well, what was the Reformation? The Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. Let's go back to the Bible. Appreciate you, preacher. Give us some more Bible. The one complaint that you can legitimately have in the church is if the preacher is not bringing you the Word of God. Preacher, we, we love you. We like the stories. Give us some Bible. We need, we, we need less stories and more Bible. We need, we need more of the Word of God. Rightly divided. Whether we like it or not. And I know sometimes it's whether you like it or not because it's very often whether I like it or not. But we have one mandate, and it's this book. And if time will permit me, it won't be today. I may take a third week away. I want you to understand what these men gave their lives for. I told you about William Tyndale last year. I'm, I'm, I'm juggling between two other men who were burned at the stake for the gospel, for translating the scripture into English for us. What would it be if I was the only one here that knew enough Greek to read the Greek to you? And what would you do to take home? You'd have to, you'd think you'd take notes now. Oh, wait, read it again? What a gift we have in these English translations of the scripture. Martin Luther took that Greek New Testament and he translated it into the German tongue and he was a hunted man. He had to hide in a castle, in the top of the castle, the hardest place to reach in the castle. He had to live by himself for nine months to translate the Greek into German. William Tyndale ran all over Europe translating the, the Greek and the Hebrew into English and gave his life before he could finish. John Rogers had to finish for him. A man that was saved, trying to help him translate. 
I see a lot of bumper stickers that, on cars that say freedom ain't free. And that's right. It's cost a lot of men their lives and their blood for us to be called Americans today. I know some people don't like to be called an American, and I'm telling you, that border's just as open to leave as it is for them to come out of South America in here. Is it perfect? No. Has it ever been? No. But we recognize there are a lot of men dead so that we can be Americans, and I'm telling you that there are as many men dead so that we can have this Bible, and we need to treat this Bible with far more respect than maybe we have in the past. I want us to understand what it is that the church is, what, what it is that the church believes, how we got here, how important these things are for us. Because the day may come very soon for you and I, if the Lord tarries, where we have to lay down our life for the things that we claim to believe from this book. And it is good for us to know what has gone before us. John Rogers was the first of the Marian martyrs to be burned at the stake. The whole town came out to see if he would hold the line to the end. He had ten kids. He met the tenth one on the way to the stake. And the Lord used that to bolster the backbone of the people in his church. And it spread throughout Europe. And it's one of the reasons that we have the church today. Because of faithful men like that that came out of the Reformation. What did these men believe? What is it that steeled the backbone of these men to do what they did? What is it that steeled the backbone of this ambivalent, wishy-washy, temperamental, emotional man of Martin Luther? What caused him to say, here I stand, I can do no other? What did he believe that caused him to do that? I can tell you what he didn't believe. He didn't believe that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will disappear and you'll have everything you ever wanted. He didn't believe a word of that. What did he believe? I'm glad you asked. Five expressions. I'm going to give them to you in, in all five right now. Then we're going to break them down. <laughs> this weekend next. Number one, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura says that it is the Scripture alone that is the basis for life and practice in the individual and in the church. You ever have a, a debate with a religionist? The first term that you need to set is who or what has ultimate authority? Is it a man or is it God? And it is not God and man. That's number one. Number two, sola gratia, G-R-A-T-I-A, gratia. Gratia is the Latin word for grace. It is by grace alone. By grace alone. Not your effort plus, not God's grace plus. It's not you and God. It's by grace alone. Number three, sola fide, by faith alone. The righteous shall live by Faith. Number four, sola Christus. You know what that second word is? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. Not Christ and anything. God didn't give him to be a part of your salvation. God sent him to be your salvation. 
Number five, soli deo gloria. All for the glory of God alone. All for God's glory. It is all to the glory of God alone. He will not share his glory with another. It is not him and you. It is not him and the church. It is all by him, for him, from him, and through him. A back to the Bible movement that came out in five expressions that were technically codified in centuries after these men were in heaven. But we're going to look at them starting right now. Sola Scriptura. What is it that sets the church apart from every other religion? What is it that sets the true church of Jesus Christ apart from every other religion? What is it? It's one thing. It is the Scripture. It is Sola Scriptura. It is that we do not go by the authority of men. We don't go by the opinions of man. We have one true source for authority in life. The Bible, friends, is the sole authority for life and practice. Well, how do we know that? Isn't that just what a man said? I'm glad you asked that question. No, it is not just because of what a man said. Let me read what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many of you are very familiar with this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. This is Paul, the apostle's swan song epistle. This is the last thing that he wrote. And he wrote this to his most beloved son in the faith, most beloved disciple that he ever had. He had poured all of his life into this young man, Timothy. And he is writing to him from the Mamertine prison in the toilet in Rome. A hole in the ground that had one way in and one way out. And after you went in, the only way you came out was either being dead or to be killed. Paul is in the Mamertine prison, and he is writing this to Timothy. I'll start in 14. It's the beginning of the sentence. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He attributes to the Scripture what is necessary for all of life and practice as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a member of his kingdom, as a, as a member of his universal flock and of a member of a local flock. It is able to take the very first step to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Where else are you going to hear about that? One man wrote a book very recently about the Christ in Hinduism. And that through Hinduism, the grace of God in Jesus Christ comes to your life. I don't know what he does with this verse. Because this says it is the sacred scripture alone. Which is able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Friends, it is the wisdom of God that is turned on in your mind when you come to realize that Jesus Christ is God's remedy for your sin. All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. That puts it above every other book and every other thing that you've ever heard in your life. It is breathed out by God, written by men. We'll get to Second Peter in a moment. It is all breathed out by God, and it is all profitable for teaching. How are you going to learn about God? You hear me pray every week that I, I, I pray that God will make us better, educated, more sufficient servants of Jesus Christ by having this book poured into our life. Being taught the truth so that we come to know more of God, know more of what he has done for us, know more of what he expects of us. Here's a word nobody really likes, for reproof. You ever been reproved before? You been in the woodshed? Friends, there's nothing that gets into your life more than the word of God. Nothing can. Not your mama, not your wife, not your kids, not your mother-in-law, not the government. And let me tell you, the IRS can't get into your life like the word of God can. If you've ever been audited, you know what that means. The writer of Hebrews says that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to pierce between the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And most of the time when it's doing that, reproof is what's coming. Because let's face it, we are far from ready for heaven the way that we are. And if he is molding and shaping us into the image of his dear son that he tells us in Romans chapter 8, then there is work to be done, and that means there is reproof to be given. And the place that that reproof comes from is the word of God. For teaching, for reproof, for correction. Okay, it tells you you're doing this wrong. And it's, don't, all of you know people that take it as their spiritual gift to point out what's wrong in a situation. Oh, that's wrong, well, that's wrong, well, that, oh, you're going to do that? Don't have to. What you suggest I do otherwise? Well, not that. Okay, well, I could have figured out not to do that. Tell me what to do. Well, don't, don't do that. The Bible's not that way. The Bible says, hey, you stop doing that. Cut that out and start doing this. Reproof and correction. Point out the problem. Correct the behavior. This is what to stop. This is what to start. This is what to turn from. This is what to follow. Friends, only the Bible can do that. If you let a man start telling you how to do that, you are already in trouble, and it's downhill from there. So I've told you we have to leave our list of rules aside, and we come to the Word of God. Now, you come to, to another believer and listen, I need, some, I need some counsel. What do I do here? And they go to the Bible and tell you that, that's different. But it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's another word people don't really like, is that word training. I mean, it's hard work to be a Christian. And this book will not let us go. This book always leads us where we need to go. This is the next exercise in our life. When the Lord sends trial, then he sends difficulty. And he's using these molding things in our life to mold us into the image of Christ. It is the word of God that informs us about that and tells us how we are to respond and gives us the comfort that we need. This is exactly what's supposed to be happening in my life. I'm being trained in righteousness. Then verse 17. Very often overlooked or given 
more of a minor part than it should have in this exposition. So that, or that, the man of God, dare I say the woman of God, dare I say the child of God, dare I say the people of God, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for the teaching that we need, the reproof that, and the correction that we demand, the training in righteousness that he has promised so that the man of God, the people of God, may be competent. You hear me use that word a lot when I pray. I'm not competent. I'm not. I'm really not. Don't, don't ask my wife because she'll agree. I'm not. When I come into this, this is where I'm the least competent. But friends, the one thing that I have confidence in is this book and the Holy Spirit that authored this book and his ability to use even a broken instrument to accomplish great things. Steve Lawson says he's able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He used a donkey to correct a false prophet and turn him into a true prophet. I'm in pretty good company. I think I'll be all right. Equipped for every good work. Friends, how important does that make this book? How important does it make the reality and the necessity in your life to have the Word of God in a language that you can clearly understand as accurately portrayed for you as is possible so that you can glean as much as possible of this book to put into your mind, into your heart, to infect your life so that you may become equipped for every good work. There is nothing that can supplant the Word of God. That is why sola scriptura is at the top of the list. And the rest flow down from there. We have to set the authority where it belongs. I had a debate, something about it. was supposed to be a conversation. It kind of turned into a debate with, a, with an apologist of, a, of another religion in, in our area. And I told him that. I said, We're gonna, I just really want to cut, cut to the chase two things. Soul, what is the, the sole authority? What's ultimate authority? Who? Well, we have the Bible, and, and we have this particular priest over here, and we have this group of priests over there, and ultimately we have the Pope. Okay, so what's the authority, this book or the Pope? Well, it's kind of a combination. No, 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 no. What is the authority? Because if the Pope gets to tell this book what it actually meant, who's the authority? That's dangerous. If you come to me and you say, preacher, Bible says this. Oh, but let me tell you what it really means. This is actually, this is what I believe is. This is what it says. This is what it's going to say here. This church, this is my church. This is what we're going to, this is what we say it says here. And I get, I'm telling you, I got Chad and Herman and, and Andre and everybody else on the lease. I get them all to agree with me. This is what we're going to believe. You just like, take it or leave it. Would you stay here if I did that? Chad wouldn't stay here if I did that. It's okay. I'm not planning. Chad's packing up now. <laughs> no what what is the authority oh well well, well how do we come to this how, um um well, how, how do we do this how how can we come to i need somebody to explain it to me you're right you do jesus told the disciples in the upper room in john 16 that when the holy spirit of god comes he will lead you into all truth he didn't say when the Holy Spirit of God comes, you're going to get a great preacher. 
be able to tell you everything you need to know. He didn't say that. Because that's not what's going to happen. You're going to be equipped for every good work. You must have the word of God in your possession. In, a, in something that you can understand. We're coming up on Halloween and there's a lot of magic and stuff that goes on. And, and uh, uh, depictions of it anyway. And uh, you, you're going to start to see uh, depictions of witches. All right, witches kind of depict the idea of magic. What do they say over there? Their little magic when they when they want to do something magic. What do they say? They wave the wand and say, "Mocha." Most of you are familiar with what I'm about to tell you, but I'm going to tell you again. You know where that term comes from? Most most of you have been in a Catholic church and been to a Catholic mass. Do you know what the priest says over that? He's got a goblet with a napkin over it and a cracker on top. When he comes to the point that that's what they do, he waves his hand and he says something. You know what he says? Anybody know what he says? He says, hoc est corpus. In Latin, this is my body. What Jesus said in the upper room, this is my body which is broken for you. This, this, this is my body. Take it in remembrance of me. And they take the Latin expression, hoc est corpus, and they bring that, and, and that whole scene of what goes on while they're supposedly re-sacrificing Jesus every time they have a mass. You know that that's what they're teaching? That becomes the literal body and flesh and blood of Jesus because it comes down from the throne of God to this place. God brings it down, and it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus because he's still in heaven being crucified. Problem, problem. Scripture says he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can't be doing both. They bring that out of, out of Europe and they, out of Italy. They bring it to the illiterate, unlearned Englishmen and these barbaric Neanderthalic Scotsmen from whom I am descended. That explains a lot. Bring it into these men and they put them in, in the place of a priest and they say, this is what you say. And they train them to say the words. And it, be, it, it be, starts to be transliterated and it comes out hocus pocus. And the kids all go out and make fun of it. And they're, they're saying, oh, well, he worked magic right there. We're going to work our magic. Hocus pocus. Friends, if it is in a language you do not understand, what good and what value is it to you? It's not. Luther understood that. William Tyndale understood that. John Rogers. Men, men like these men understood that the world needed it, even if it cost me my life. People must know the Word of God because the Word of God is the sole authority for life and practice. How can you ever be competent, equipped for any good work without the Scripture? And they gave their lives for it. Second Timothy is not the only place we find this. Second Peter chapter 1. Oh, I like Peter. If we ever get tired of singing in heaven, I'm going to sit down and talk to Peter. We won't, by the way. It's just food for thought. Peter, giving his testimony, Second Peter, his swan song epistle. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Who's the we? The apostles. Did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Anybody remember where that is? 
Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus pull the veil back and they saw his humanity and his divinity blended and they fell into a coma. All they could handle was that. God had to put them in a coma so they could survive it. We saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice born to him by the majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. I saw it. Peter said, I was there. I'm telling you, I was conscious. I was there. I was, I was there. John was there. James, we were there. We saw it all. We saw every bit of it. What we're telling you is eyewitness testimony. Do you want hearsay or do you want eyewitness testimony? You want eyewitness testimony. Somebody comes and tells you something. And I just don't hardly believe that. I got to go get that from the horse's mouth, right? Peter says, here's the horse. Here's the mouth. This is what we saw. Verse 18. We overheard the very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure. What? Yes, okay, it's one thing for me to hear the, the firsthand testimony from you, and then to have video evidence. But for you, as the eyewitness, to say, I saw it with my own two eyes, I experienced it, I felt the heat from that, I, I was there. But there's something more sure than that. The prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Whoo, you need to remember that. That's a book written by men. This book says it was not written by a man's own interpretation. Peter didn't get to write what he felt like. He references later in chapter 3 what Paul wrote, and he said some of it's hard to understand. The unstable and, and untaught distort to their own destruction. This is serious business. This is not someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Think about that. What would have possessed Jeremiah to sit down and write what he wrote? The destruction is coming. You're going to Babylon. Don't go to Egypt because the sword's going to get you there. Don't go to Syria because the plague is going to get you there. Go into prison in Babylon. Oh, and by the way, I'll take my knight in the cistern over that. They wouldn't, no, no one wrote what he thought. Not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Graphic language. Graphic language. You put a sail on a boat, what happens? That much wind blows, that boat's gone. That's the word, the expression used here is they were carried like a, a sailboat is carried by the breath of the wind. The Holy Spirit of God came. And these men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And remember, very often these letters were written by an amanuensis. So we have veritable sermons from Paul and Peter that were written by someone with faster, better handwriting to copy this and send these to the churches. That's why Paul says, this is my mark on every letter. I write the last greeting so that you know it's from me, not the, the beginning of it. The only letter that we know that Paul wrote himself was the letter to the churches in Galatia. This wasn't written by man's own interpretation. No man sat down and said, you know what, I want to write a memoir. I got to tell you. If it was just men that are going to sit around and write some stuff, and some of the things that they wrote about themselves and one another in the Gospels, who in their right mind would have done that? 
Matthew didn't sit down and say, you know what? I want to write a gospel. I'm going to tell everybody what a wretched, wicked, disgusting human being I was. Not going to do that. Tax collector said volumes about him. It's in there. Tells us that James and John wanted to burn that Samaritan village to the ground because they were so vicious. Now, if you were James and John, look, Matt, take that. We ain't putting that in. Matt, cut that out. Edit that, Matt. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Edit that out of that gospel. They didn't do it. Not just in the New Testament we get this, but all over the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you two passages in the Old Testament that are very familiar to all of us. You want to read about the Word of God, you can turn to Psalm 119 and just start reading. It's the whole psalm is about the Word of God. Masterfully, poetically written. Just three verses from there for right now. Something we, we, uh, we sing here sometimes. We teach our, our children in kids club and at home. How can a young man keep his way pure? How? Friends, we live in a day and age where purity is evaporating. And it is being viciously replaced with amorality. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding his way according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If I'm going to not sin against God, what is the only remedy to store up the word of God in my heart? Sola Scriptura. It is the scripture alone. It doesn't say, how can a young man keep his way pure? By doing penance. doesn't say that. By going to church regularly. It doesn't give any religious practice by guarding it according to your word. Do you understand the place that that gives to the word of God over all of your life? Much like at Psalm 19. Psalm that, that has a, a very large portion of it that is directly speaking of the word of God. In verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. When's the last time you saw something perfect? Probably a little, just a little moment in your mind from the first time you saw your husband. And it fled away quick. It doesn't say, I thought the law of the Lord was perfect. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Man, how are you going to revive a soul through the word of God? We pray for people in this church all the time that are going through heartache and misery. What do they depend on? What do you depend on? You depend on the prayers of the saints and the word of God. Reviving the soul. What else can do that? What religious practice can do that? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When did religion ever answer a question you ever had? How's it going to bring any wisdom? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. How do we know the difference between what, what is being we're being bombarded with in the world and what God calls holy? How do we know the difference? It is the word of God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It says that if you want to have the right sort of... Solomon said that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. What does that fear come from? It comes from a right understanding of this word. The fear of the Lord, understanding his, his scripture, knowing who he is from the scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There's nothing in your life that you can trust like the word of God. 
Sola Scriptura. The psalmist says it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. How many of you ever kept rules that were given to you by a religionist that ever brought reward to your life? You know the only reward that the keeping of a religionist rules can bring to you? The only reward it brings is a haughty spirit, because I did it and they didn't. Can you say amen? Go ahead. Capital O. Ouch. I grew up in it. We're better than them, 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 and you because we keep these rules. Welcome to the Holy Spirit, my friend. Enjoy it because that's your reward. But when we come to the Word of God, keeping the Word of friends, there is reward in that. It doesn't mean that your bank account grows. Paul says, Paul speaks of the peace that transcends understanding. Find yourself in a situation where the Word of God says one thing and your flesh and everything around you says another and you are obedient to the Word of God, friends. That peace that transcends understanding is a reward all its own. Being right with God on His terms is a reward all its own. It may cast you into prison in this life, but it is a reward all its own. And only the Scripture, only the Word of God can bring that. And it is from this highest point of authority that the scripture is that flows down sola gratia and sola fide sola Christus and sola deo gloria we have to have the right starting point and these men in the reformation bled and died and gave their lives and their families and their fortunes to see to it that the scripture would be available for the people of God so that we could know what grace is, that we can know what faith is, we can know who Christ is and the grace that comes to us through that faith. I can't wait to preach it, but I'm going to have to.